<clears throat> May we talk this morning about sin? I'm pretty sure you didn't wake up saying, boy, I hope the sermon's about sin today. But that's, that's what I'd like us to confront. If, if we're going to be people of full faith and we're going to allow our faith to grow and make room in our lives for us to experience the fullness of life that God wants to, us to encounter, it involves talking about sin. Or if a different word works for you, maybe transgression or trespass or debt or failure or mistake or what, whatever it might be. That really is part of what it means to be a person of faith. But before we get any further in the, into, the, into the sermon, let me say this. I'm aware that for some of you, maybe many of you, that word sin has been used as a way to control, to put down, to coerce. Some theologies would say that your sin will require you to be in church and out of fear they'll force you to be in church or force you to, to be a part of, of their, uh, their community because you're... Well, you're going to go to some place where you will fry forever. I understand that's a part of our lives for many of us. It's certainly the theology that I heard growing up in a variety of churches. In fact, there are even still some churches today that will say to you, oh, if you're, if you're an LGBTQ person, this is just shocking to me that this still exists, but they're out there. If you're an LGBTQ person, then you are certainly going to be sentenced forever to hell. Or if you're a Muslim or a, a Buddhist or a Hindu or some other religion, you are going to be sent away to this place of eternal torment. Even within the Christian faith, there's the theology that says, if you're a Roman Catholic or if you're a Mormon, you'll, you'll suffer forever. I heard a preacher just last week say that, that Mormons are destined for hell. You know, it's Anne Lamott, the great writer, who says, you can be pretty sure that you've created God in your own image if it turns out God hates all the same people you do. <laughs> it's pretty true. It's very true. So we want to be careful that we, we're not talking about sin in that way this morning. In fact, I, I want you to know I've done a little bit of research on, on heaven and hell and what the Bible really says about those two ideas. Maybe in the fall or maybe early next year, I'm going to preach a sermon series on what the Bible says about heaven and hell. And in this research, I found, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, that of those who believe in hell, less than one half of one percent believe they're going to go there. <laughs> I know it's kind of funny. But that's what the statistic shows. That's what the survey shows. So what is, who is hell for? Somebody else. The other. Those people we named this morning. So, so, I, so I understand that there's that concern when you hear me say the word sin and talk this way. This morning we'll talk about sin from a platform, from a foundation of God's love and grace, hope and mercy given to the world. So take a moment then. And think about the last time you committed a sin or a mistake or a failure or, or found yourself caught up in weakness or transgression or trespass, whatever works for you. The Hebrew word for it is chatah, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Think about the last time you did something like that. And if you're having a hard time remembering, maybe talk to the person next to you. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that in some way, a relationship, if only momentarily, or for a short time, was broken. Because most of the time when we commit these sins, when we commit these failures, when we uh, commit these trespasses, 
Most of the time what we're doing is we're hurting the people we're closest to. And that relationship of the ones we love, for, love the most and care for the most is broken. And by naming the sin, we take the first step toward reclaiming and recommitting ourselves to that friend, the spouse, the child, parent, neighbor, co-worker, whoever, whoever it might be. That's, that's why this conversation is so important to our faith. It allows us to, to move forward in a way that otherwise we cannot if we do not name whatever the issue is that needs to be confronted. And we also want to be careful this morning that we don't get into blame. It's real easy to blame the other when you're caught in, in, with some kind of a mistake or some kind of uh, sin that's happening in your life. I mean, if I've got a report that's due for the governing board and I don't have it done on the time when they expected to see it, and I say to them, well, Paul Bomber came to see me while I was working on this report, and therefore it's Paul's fault. I, you know, I'm, I'm really not owning it, am I? It's not, and by the way, Paul would never do that. <clears throat> but we've got to be careful that we don't, in the action point at somebody else and say, well, here's the problem. In fact, here's, here's the best way to illustrate it. There was a fight going on at a preschool playground. A couple of fourth grade boys, 10 years old. They're scuffling and rustling around and a teacher walks in, pulls them apart, says, okay, come on, come with me. She marches them into the principal, sets them down in the principal's office and the principal asks, okay, what's going on? Somebody tell me what happened. And the one little boy says, it all started when he hit me back. You see, you see, that really is the point. It didn't start when he hit me back. It started, it started when I, when I failed, when I fell down. I, I mentioned the word, the Hebrew word chatav a few moments ago. It's, it's, it's a word that literally means to miss the mark. It's a word that comes out of archery. It's an archery term. If I've got a bow and arrow here and my target is that exit sign on the back of the sanctuary and I let that arrow go and it misses the exit sign and sticks somewhere in the balcony, I've committed what the Hebrews would call, the old Hebrews would call, a chata. I've missed my target. I've missed my mark. Think of that in the same way in our relationships and the way we're considering that this morning. If I promise that I'm going to love my wife and give myself to her fully and in some stupid action, some mean-spirited word or something else, I cause that love not to be experienced and be made real in her life, whether for a moment or a day or a time, I've committed what the Hebrews would call a chata, a missing of the mark, a sin. Because those relationships matter, especially with the ones we care for the most. <clears throat> Which reminds me of something that Barbara Brown Taylor said. You, you may have heard her name before, brilliant theologian. A beautiful writer, just unbelievably talented. She wrote a book a few years ago titled Speaking of Sin. And one of the chapters in the book was Sin is the Hope of the World. That's kind of a provocative title. I skipped ahead in the book and started with that, with that chapter. I wanted to see what she had to say. And she basically says this, if we can name our sin, if we can acknowledge that it's there and we can admit, yes, I trespassed here, I transgressed here, I missed the mark there. By naming it, we've already taken the step towards a new life, towards reclaiming our relationship with God and reclaiming our relationship with each other. It's not about feeling bad. It's not about staying there in that moment and feeling terrible and, and walking around with a hangdog look on our face. It's about naming it so that we can then go forward. What a, what a beautiful statement that is. Sin. Maybe even the hope of the world. Here's a way to think about this. Consider uh, a young man I knew once named Teddy. Teddy uh, went with us on a Mex Mexico mission trip several years ago that I was, I was leading. Teddy was 16 years old, 
Good athlete, football player, linebacker on the football team, pretty good student, as far as I could tell, an all-around good guy. But he'd never been to a church his entire life, completely non-churched, was an anti-church, had just never been. One of the kids on the trip invited him to go with us to Mexico. He came to all the pre-planning sessions, got heavily involved, loved the trip, had a great time, and kept saying every day, wow, who knew that the church was doing such great work in the world? This is so much fun building homes in Mexico for the homeless. And, and then at night at the campfire circles, we talk about God's love for the world and a message of grace and hope. And he totally caught up in it and really loved it. Said to me, in fact, at the end of the week, would it be okay if I started coming to your church? I said, uh, yes, we'll let you come to church. That'd be great. But two months later, he joined the church. New member Sunday, came with the other new members, gave his confession of faith, and was welcomed in, into that congregation. And then a couple of months went by. Service was over. The senior minister had preached. I was working the back door as the associate that day, and I saw Teddy come through, and he's crying. I was going, Teddy, what, what's, what's wrong with you? Are you okay? What's, what's up? He said, he said Glenn, um, ever since I've become a Christian, my life has become very hard. By the way, we're not going to put that on the website, just so you know. <laughs> I said, what, what do you mean? He said, I've been, I've been paying attention to what Jesus instructs about loving your neighbor, about even loving your enemies and people you don't like. And the more I look at my life, I, I kind of discovered I'm a jerk. I walked down the hallways, and I, I used to walk down the hallways, and I'd see guys that weren't athletes, that weren't playing on the football team, and I'd kind of knock them down, call them a name, pick on them a little bit, tease them. I'm, I'm kind of a bully, he said. I treat girls terribly. I, I talk down to girls. I, I'm, not a very, I'm not a very kind person at home. I, ever since I started going to church and listening to the, the teachings of Jesus, my life has been more difficult. And I smiled and said, Teddy, it's one of the best things I've ever heard. That's exactly what it means to be in the Christian faith, to, to pay attention to our own lives, to pay attention to the way we live and act and interact with each other. If I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, that's going to make me pay attention to the times that I fail to love my neighbor. And there, and there is God and God's Spirit there to pick me up and gently nudge me forward, not to lay and rely on the guilt, but to actually allow the guilt to help us go forward. It's it's what I call, I said this to Teddy, it's what I call the pain of grace. Grace is there. Forgiveness is real. But sometimes it can be painful to deal with it, to see it. Do you remember the old hymn, Amazing Grace? How's that line go? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And the second line, the next line, "'And grace my fears relieved.'" always in that order. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Well, the text that you heard a few moments ago is a powerful one, a strange one, a, a weird one, an unusual one. It would take a, a couple hours of lectures, of, of theological lectures, to really get into all the many things that are, that are at work there. But just know this, Isaiah has had an overwhelming experience of awe and holiness. It's a mystery. 
And so in, in, in writing his, his prophetic book, he tried to put it into words and, and it just, he just couldn't come up with anything other than these, these wild images of these many-winged seraphs and, and other beings and God's holiness filling this gigantic throne room and smoke and the fire and, and all the rest. It, don't get caught up in the literalness of it, of course. But what Isaiah experiences in that moment is a sense of his own failure, his own weakness, his own, what did he say? I, I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Have you ever experienced that? Been in, been in the presence of something so amazing you just felt like you're about that big? When I was 15, I went with the high school band on a trip to Northern Arizona, played at a halftime show at Northern Arizona University, and then we stopped at the Grand Canyon on the way home. I remember standing right on the edge of, that, of, of the cliff there and looking out over and just overwhelmed by the landscape and feeling just tiny, teeny tiny. More than that, I, I recall the time I held my firstborn. On the very first day, he was out of the womb. They cleaned him up, brought him to me, and I looked down and it was, I, some of you have been there. It was a holy experience. I mean, it was the sacredness of that, that beautiful young boy, that perfectly round head, beautiful face looking up at me. And at the same time, I, having this holy experience, I, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I, who am I to be a father? I went through all my mistakes and failures as a kid and now as a young adult and all the things, all the shortcomings and, and inabilities that I have and I've got to be this kid's dad. Oh my goodness, there's, I'm not sure I can do this. Just feeling overwhelmed by the whole experience. By the way, if Nate was sitting here on the front, he's 28 now, if he was sitting here on the front row, he'd say, amen, dad, about time you acknowledge this, about time. <laughs> no, no doubt, no doubt he would. So do you see what I'm talking about? There's that, there's that sense of, of just feeling as though in the presence of God, in the presence of holiness, we, can't, we just can't quite measure up. This is, this is where Isaiah is. This is what Isaiah is experiencing. And the text goes on. And the seraphim, remember the seraphim? Six wings, two covering the eyes, two covering the feet, two that, that it flies with. It picks up a pair of tongs, goes over to the fire, grabs a hot coal there from the fire, flies over to where Isaiah is, and touches his lips with the coal and declares, your sin is no more. Your guilt has departed. Pay attention to that text. Pay attention to the beauty of the grace there. Isaiah doesn't do something to deserve it. He doesn't prove that he's going to be okay. He doesn't say, I'm going to live a new life. None of that happens. It's freely given. The forgiveness is real, named, placed right there in front of him. But there's also the hint, though, of danger and pain. Remember what I said about the pain of grace? There's a little hint there of danger and of pain. This is why we don't take these things literally. We don't want to touch our lips with hot coals. I don't think that would be a good idea. But what he's implying in this metaphor is that naming our need for forgiveness and acknowledging our need for grace is a frightening and sometimes painful thing. In fact, so much so, some people are, are tempted to run in the exact opposite direction from the pain. I have, I have many friends who are very good therapists psychotherapists, psychologists. They tell me that oftentimes as they meet with their patients, the closer they get with some to where the actual pain lives, that the person becomes frightened or angry or rude or flat out fires the therapist and runs and finds another therapist and starts the whole process over again because the pain is so great they just can't quite name it. Jesus talked about this too. He said the light of God came into the world, but some preferred the darkness. 
Some preferred the darkness. My friend Joe preferred the darkness. Joe grew up in a family that was kind of torn apart. Rarely ever saw his dad. And as a result of that, when he was about 14 or 15 years old, he joined a gang. And this gang did the kind of stuff that gangs do. And he got real caught up in it. And then he started to feel very, very guilty. And he couldn't sleep at night, so he began to drink. And he drank a lot, 15 years old. Drank a lot so he could sleep. But the guilt didn't go away during the day when he was awake, so he would drink all day to numb the pain, to, to numb the guilt. And the more he drank, the dumber things he did. Finally got arrested. 17 years old, ended up in a juvenile detention center. Was there for a few months. A couple years later, when he was 19, arrested again, doing some stupid, I don't even get into stuff what he was doing. It was dangerous, scary, frightening. Ended up in prison again, several months in prison. A few years later, in his early 20s, third time, third time in prison. He was running as hard as he could away from that light, as hard as he could. He got now into drugs, into armed robbery, all kinds of things. But on his third stint in prison, he literally told me, I laid down in that bunk bed on my first night, and I thought to myself, I got a clean sheet, clean place to sleep, clothes, three meals a day. This isn't a bad thing. I'll just hang out here for a while, and then I'll go back to my life. And Joe said to me, he was in a Bible study that I was leading. He said to me, there was this something that happened deep in my gut. I, he said, I don't even know how to explain it, Glenn. He said, it just started to well up inside of me. and just, It just caused me to sit up straight in the bed. And, and all of a sudden I said in a voice that didn't sound like my own, no, this is not the life I want. No. He said to me in a, over a quiet cup of coffee, Glenn, I, I believe that was the voice of God speaking through me and to me. The light finally came on. I finally saw the light that I, the life that I was living. And I learned to leave the guilt behind. Now hear that last word. I learned to leave the guilt behind. Guilt is never a place where we stay. Guilt is a place that may turn the light on. It may help us see the reality of what our lives are, uh, are like. But guilt is truly a bridge from this place to the place to the full life that God intends for us to live. If one stays on the, on the bridge named guilt, one is stuck and doesn't have a life. Guilt is nothing more than a helper across the bridge back to the life, back to reclaiming the relationships with God and with each other that God intends for us to experience. The seraph flying around Isaiah with that hot coal knew this. It's a simple gift given to all of us. Think, think, for example, about the story of Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Remember that story? Remember the little song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he? Ron Jenkins knows that one. I know he knows it. <clears throat> a wee little man was he, and, and Jesus comes into town into Jericho, and Zacchaeus is so small he has to climb up in a sycamore tree in order to see Jesus, and Jesus walks up to him and says, Zacchaeus, get on down because I'm going to your house today. And if you know the story, you know that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. In Israel, 2,000 years ago, tax collectors <coughs> were enemies, traitors. They had signed up with the Romans. They were getting rich off of their friends by, by selling out to the Roman occupying army. Everyone hated the tax collectors, and yet there was nothing they could do about it. Jesus sees him, says, come on down, I'm going to your house. Again, note the order in which this happens. There's no confession of sin. There's no acknowledgement of his need for forgiveness. None of that. God, Jesus just comes in and announces his presence. In the same way Isaiah experienced the presence of God overwhelming him, Jesus just came in. And Zacchaeus, in response to the holiness of that moment, 
declares, as Jesus calls him a son of, a child of Abraham, which is a, a, an ancient Israel way of saying you're a part of God's family. As a child of Abraham, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to give everything back. I'm going to give everything back to everybody I've stole from. In fact, I'll pay them four times more than what I took. He, he discovers a new life. He doesn't sit there in his house wallowing in his guilt and his sin and his failure and all the rest. Instead, instead he moves forward in faith and hope. <clears throat> now let's be clear. The whole world sometimes has a hard time with this message. If you read the rest of Isaiah 6, in fact, it'll say in the next couple of verses after the part we read today, they're not going to listen. They're not going to receive it. They're not going to understand it. They are going to turn away from it. And yet, God says, who will go? And Isaiah says, here am I. I will. This is the word we've been given to share with the world. As frightening as it is, as hard as it is, this is the invitation We've been, we've been given from God to take this word out into the world. And I, I've said this before, and I'll say it again and again and again. This message can save, not mine, this word can save the world if we can embrace the goodness of God's love for everyone and begin to live it out in the way we live our very lives. You see, we've been sent, along with Isaiah, not only to live this out with each other, but to live this out with everyone we encounter. I'm not talking about knocking on doors. I'm talking about being a person of grace, being a person who opens one's heart and mind and soul to everyone they encounter. Have you, have you seen the movie, The Blues Brothers? Raise your hand if you've seen the movie, The Blues Brothers. So you've seen it, you remember that movie? It's a terrible movie, but it's one of my top 10 favorites. I've seen it at least 37 times. I, 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 love the way, I love the way John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd, the Blues Brothers, are, are, are weaving their way through Illinois and eventually into Chicago on this strange thing that they're doing. They're trying to raise money for an orphanage. And every dumb thing they do, somebody will stop and say, what is it you guys are doing? And what will they say? We're on a what? Mission from God. They're on a mission from God. It becomes the central joke of the, of the movie all the way through. They continue to say every dumb thing they do. Why are you doing this? Why are you driving at night with sunglasses on? We're on a mission from God. We don't know. We're just on a mission from God. My friends, that's the central joke of the Bible. From Abraham to the Apostle Paul and everyone in between, people like us who stumble, who fail, who sin, who fall, who need to be helped back up, we're on a mission from God. We've been sent out into the world, not because we've become perfect, not because we have the right answers, but because we've experienced something of the holiness, the grandeur, and the beauty of God's grace given to us. I know it's not easy. Later today, I'm going to drive north to Kenyon College and perform a wedding ceremony there for two members of our church. They met in high school and dated here in, in Columbus, then went off both of them to Kenyon College where they dated again and then went in separate ways. Broke up, married, had families, and then 30 years later, they found their way back to each other. It's a beautiful story, a lovely tale. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 13 and I'm going to focus on that phrase that says, love is patient. There, theirs is a story of the patience of love, of the way that love reemerged when they encountered each other again three decades later. And then at the end of the homily, I'm going to tell them this story from the movie Feast of Love. 
starring Greg Kinnear. It's a story of three couples whose lives intersect and they experience different things, but by the end of the movie, there's a, a melancholy tone, a sadness, because there have been breakups and, 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 and divorces and there have been deaths and all kinds of, of painful things. And one character says to Greg Kinnear, the star, he says, I don't believe in God. I, I, just, I just don't believe in God. And if there is a God, then God doesn't love us. Or why would God allow us to experience all this pain? And Greg Kinnear says, who's been through his own pain, his own sorrows, his own losses and breakups and the rest, and is now about to enter again into a relationship that feels a little tenuous, but he's walking into it gingerly. He says, no, 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 there is a God. Are you kidding? There is a God. If, if there wasn't a God, then why? And God does love us. And if God didn't love us, then why did God give us hearts that are so brave? Hearts that are so brave. There, there is a God, and we've been given brave hearts. We've been given all we need to face whatever it is we need to face, to name the grace and the forgiveness and to move forward in faith as we walk together with our brave hearts.